Business First Crisis Management, a podcast about seeing your business through the coronavirus pandemic. I'm reporter Carrie Ghosh. Today's guests are Will Zell and Brian Graham of the Westerville startup Nicola Labs. After two years as COO, Graham stepped up as CEO over the summer, and co-founder Zell, who was CEO, is stepping away from operations. He's going to be focusing on his next enterprise, which is a publicly backed venture capital fund. 2020 was shaping up to be Nicola's best year ever, as more factories were ready to install its system of sensors that serve as an early warning system for equipment breakdown, thus preventing expensive downtime. But dozens of installations were canceled in pandemic shutdowns and the company lurched into survival mode. Zell is a serial entrepreneur from Belfontin. He first met Graham more than seven years ago when Zell was taking a previous startup through the 10X Business Accelerator. The former Battelle executive was one of the mentors. The two stayed in touch until Zell achieved what he calls a coup of getting Graham to join Nicola. They talk about their history and how their complementary talents blended for co-leadership of a still evolving company. And as always, thanks for listening. I'm Carrie Ghosh and we have with us the principals of Nicola Labs of Westerville here in Central Ohio. So Will Zell, founder and past CEO, and Brian Graham, who had been COO and has been promoted to CEO. So um, let's talk about what led you here and about that transition. First, explain for a newcomer listener to this, what it is that wireless power uh, remote monitoring of machinery is your product and how this year was shaping up to be what would have been your best year ever before everything fell apart in the whole world. Sure, I can, uh, I can take that one. So quick little bit about Nicola Labs. We're a spin out from The Ohio State University. A uh, company was founded in late 2014 with a really interesting technology developed by Dr. Chi Chi Chen. Uh, that we worked to commercialize, spent the first two and a half, three years trying to find where uh, we could create value in the world uh, while we were developing out the core technology. Ended up really focusing in on wireless sensor-based condition monitoring for uh, manufacturing organizations. We went from what was originally a a pure company uh, focused on wireless energy harvesting hardware to building out a full platform um, for uh, sensor-based condition monitoring, which we call Vero. Uh, we developed that over time, and when I say full platform, it includes uh, sensors, cloud-based software, data analytics, human analytics, installation, ongoing service and maintenance, so a, an all-in-one system that is rapidly deployable uh, for manufacturers to implement sensor-based condition monitoring which is where we go in and we let them know that machines are heading to failure before they actually fail. Um, And we reduce uh, an event called unplanned downtime, which is when stuff breaks unexpectedly. Uh, So really big problem in manufacturing that we can effectively solve with our platform. Now we've built out a lot of capabilities beyond, let's say our early days as a wireless power company. In fact, wireless power as a technology is still highly constrained and very, very nascent, uh, primarily around regulatory constraints. Um, So we're depending a lot on other technology and around ultra-low power electronic design, 
and the sensor technology that, that we've developed uh, in-house. So we launched our first generation in early 2019 and started to kind of really be out there in the market, probably middle of the year to into the third quarter, found what we would consider to be product market fit and began to scale up uh, with our customers, which led to a lot of excitement coming into 2020 that it was going to be our breakout year. Started that way in January and February, then everything went to crap. <laughs> so, Brian, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No, it's a great, that's a great uh, overview, Will. To help folks conceptualize this, there are two hand-in-hand things going on, which is that Nicholas started with this uh, technology that came out of Ohio State, which the, when we say wireless power, it means that you turn radio frequency into actual, you can basically charge an electrical device through the air using radio waves. And so you had explored things, um, hearing aids, so forth. So, um, and then you discuss, so explain why this machinery breakdown in manufacturing is a huge problem, but why it would be impossible to do this type of sensor system that you did with absent your core technology, which is this chip that can be powered by radio waves. Yeah, so to add a little little bit of context around the story. So when you're looking at kind of fundamentally the value that Nikola Labs creates is if you think about an implementation of an internet of things solution where you, you want to put a lot of sensors out into uh, environment to you know, capture data to create value for an end user. One of the constraining problems is power, right? So today you have a single use battery or rechargeable battery, but when you begin to deploy those at, at scale, um, how do you manage that type of, of deployment without having to replace you know, batteries every couple of months? So what, what's really important to note um, about our journey is as we were thinking about the power problem, and how you solve it for the Internet of Things, it, it extends beyond just wireless energy harvesting and wireless power transfer. There are really three levers. You've got that aspect, which is in situations where it works well, your ability to deliver power over distance without wires, which is incredibly cool technology. So that's one lever. The, third, the second is you, the way that you design a system. So the power consumption of an electronic synth system to capture data, process it, and transmit it. And then the third is the energy storage that you use uh, to be most efficient in a particular application. And so what we, the way that we now look at the world, and this was probably the biggest evolution through this, this time period, is moving just from looking at the world through wireless power to now we've actually got these three levers that we can pull to create value in an end market. And the biggest challenge right now with wireless power in and its impact in, in the world is that there are a significant amount of regulatory constraints applied to it by the FCC. And what I mean by that is they limit the amount of power that can be transmitted from a device, which significantly limits how much power can be delivered over distance. So we actually aren't even really focused that much right now in, in that, that lever because there are regulations that need to change that will enable wireless power to become the market that we believe it can be and that we'll be able to to really scale up that side of the business so when we're looking at you know wireless sensors for manufacturing when we came into the market 
you know, we're looking at the status quo and you'd have sensors that would die, you know, every six months, nine months. We had some customers that are coming to us saying they'd put a wireless sensor out in three months, they have to go and replace the battery. And like that's untenable if you're talking about deploying thousands of sensors. So we, we took those three levers, we started innovating, started building out the platform. And thankfully, even with the constraints, if you will, that are around wireless power, through the other two levers, we were able to design systems that um, in our second generation platform, when we install a sensor, it'll likely last for at least a decade, maybe longer. Now, arguably, when you add wireless power to that over time, it becomes decades. But going from six months to 10 years using efficient energy storage and ultra low power electronic design is significant innovation. And that's what we've been able to focus on to get us to this point and where we can now go and deploy sensors in, in the thousands in a manufacturing facility and our customers don't have to worry about replacing batteries. And it's, you know, Brian, you can add to that, like how that has changed the dynamic and how our customers are like really just loving that, that kind of maintenance free solution. So there's the technology piece and the way we've solved for that. But then in addition, and it's somewhat obviously of a, a bit of a trade secret, but it's, it's how we engage with our customers and the frictionless experience that we provide our customers in the end, which is more than just technology innovation. It's really getting on the business model innovation as well. Last September, you had signed your first million dollar contract. What was the year? I mean, what, what was the kind of customer base you started the year with and what, how many new customers did you think you can add? And what, what were kind of the, the actual physical barriers that came up? Because fairly quickly in the pandemic, people figured out how to put up plexiglass shields and stay away from each other and use masks. And factories are very big places. So how long was it before you could start doing installations again? when we talk about hitting product market fit, right, and beginning to see the opportunity for that, that scale up is around, I think, September of last year is when we started seeing some of these meaningful commitments. Now, we, we sell to our customer in a, we call this a land and expand enterprise sales model. Um, so if you look at a you know, manufacturing organization that may have 40 facilities across the United States, we go in and we sell and install into one facility on a limited install, improve the value, and then start to build out the installation base from there. Um, and so, and the belief that we have is as we can prove value in a limited install, we more or less pay for ourselves over and over and over again as we continue to, to scale up within the organization. So we started getting some of that interest and that intent and those commitments from customers you know, in the second half of last year that led us to, you know, the belief that like, this is going to be that, that type of breakout year, whereas we install, we can, you know, begin to see revenues increase significantly. You hit the nail on the head, like once things are shut down, they shut down for us and, you know, basically overnight. So we're no longer able to go out and install, install. We had probably well over a dozen, maybe almost two dozen installations that were in queue when the shutdown hit, as well as our ability to go out and actually serve the customer from a sales perspective as well. We're very dependent uh, on our team being out and actually selling face-to-face. -face. And this is where I've got to give like a ton of credit to Mr. Graham here. Once, you know, it was immediate overnight, like, oh my goodness, it, we our business has just fundamentally changed. And it's where he really stepped in and started aggressively leading on how do we 
then now respond to that. And a lot of it initially was let's survive, right? And let's think about that from a perspective. But then like, how do we begin to retool our, our fundamental business to where we can get, you know, still be effective and productive and, and even potentially more efficient. Um, Brian, can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, how dire was the situation? Were you having to lay people off? Um, or was it just a, a technological problem or a, a logistical problem more, more like to figure out how to safely get back into your client sites? Or was the problem that they were shut down? Well, actually, it was almost everything of the, of the above. That, I mean, <laughs> we, we, listen, we literally live by the, the phrase that Winston Churchill said is, and that is, never waste a crisis. And that's the way we approached this. We recognized that this is something that everybody was going to be dealing with. We recognized that we have no idea how this is going to play out. We have no idea how our customers are going to respond. But we knew what we had to focus in on. You know, as a startup, and we literally are, we, we are a mature startup. We're still a startup, though. Uh, you, you know, you rely on your, your, your funding because we're still in the fundraising stage. And we had no idea how that was going to play out over time. So we had to take some pretty quick action. You know, and I, I appreciate Will's comments and his, uh, uh, his compliment there, but honestly, when you start in that fog of war, which is literally what we faced in the March timeframe, uh, it was very challenging, it really was. And I would argue that throughout my career, this is probably one of the most difficult times I faced personally in terms of having to make so many decisions so quickly with so little information. And, uh, but I have to say, it was a team effort. And what we did is, is first of all, obviously got good alignment with the board around, here's the reality of what we know, here's our position, and then how are we gonna survive? And then taking some very drastic actions that we had to do a couple of things. Number one, we absolutely had to focus on what was important to keep the company going and to keep servicing our customers, at least the ones that we had at that point in time, and obviously continue to grow their customer base and, and get their cash that we need in over a period of time. And then that required a really good partnership with the leadership team and starting with the leadership team, really getting alignment on the realities of where we are, some of the hard decisions we have to make and have to take. And, and then obviously coming up with a very good action plan that we all aligned with and we felt we could execute against. So to answer your question, it was very difficult. Our primary goal was, number one, keep the staff as safe as we possibly can. What do we have to do around that? And I think everybody approached it that way. And then take actions there where we could minimize the impact on staff to the extent that we possibly can, looking at other areas where we could cut costs or at least defer some of those costs. And then secondarily, if we, where we have to deal with the reality of the, the payroll, how are we going to do that? And we, we, we really put a concerted effort in, in securing every possible source of support we could find, whether it was the PPP loan, which we ended up getting, uh, or any other ways to uh, retain our core staff to the extent that we possibly could, we focused in on that. Unfortunately, we did have to um, go through furloughs. We furloughed a handful of staff. And ultimately, we did end up, unfortunately, having to left, uh, let some staff go. The remainder of the staff all took significant pay cuts. And again, it was a team effort that required a lot of dialogue with, with the staff on an ongoing basis. 
communicating what we're facing, why we're doing what we have to do, but recognizing the, the value and the contribution that everybody brings to the table. And we, we are just so, for, so fortunate. We've just got some wonderful people and everybody worked as a team. And over a period of time, as the realities of the COVID impact and how customers were responding started playing out, we were able to slowly get back to what I consider normal now. So we are at just just recently at a at a, at a at a at a platform of normality um, that somewhat mirrors the pre-COVID experience. Having said that, though, I would argue we are far more efficient, far more effective, and far more lean than we've ever been because it forced us to address how we're structuring the company, how we're engaging from, a, um, from one function to the other. And in addition to that, we moved a few people around because it really provided us with the opportunity to get those people who, who really stepped up in, in the right roles. And, and I will argue we're probably the strongest we've ever been now, albeit we're still facing the realities of fundraising, et cetera. How many employees do you have right now? So currently we have 27 employees. And where were you at the beginning of the year? We were just over 30. We were, I stand corrected now, uh, depending on the time. I think we were around 32 at the time. Okay. Can you walk through, say, one example of a process that you tore apart through this that's now, and rebuilt, that's now more efficient? The one I would point to is um, the sales process here. And, and I must give full credit to the gentleman who's now our Chief Operating Officer, Brian Ratcliffe, who's taken, stepped up into the leadership role here. He previously oversaw his VP of Operations, so we brought him in, we gave him both sales and operations. Quite candidly, through a lot of his design and ideas around this, how we could make this more efficient, we brought the two teams together. He took full uh, responsibility and accountability and he drove that hard. And, and to answer your question more pointedly, a great example is we had to respond, okay, right now we have inside sales and we have outside sales. The outside sales teams couldn't go out and now meet with the, the various facility managers that they were meeting with. How are we going to deal with that? And so it really was just a leverage of tools, platforms, and a different way of approaching and communicating and then engaging with our customer bases uh, our customer base and the various individuals within that customer base in terms of uh, a different sales model. And uh, that's proven to be actually pretty effective and, and actually has helped us from a cost point of view if, if you think about the realities of how many more people you can engage with via Zoom call as opposed to being on the road, and, you know, traveling from facility to facility. So that's a classic example of an improvement in the process. How many of those things do you think become permanent, um, you know, adopting Zoom as a sales tool, et cetera, uh, when things are normal-ish? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, I'd like to get Will's view as well, but you know, from my point of view, I think, I think it's, it's fair to say that we are gonna have a, a different, coming out of this, things are gonna be different from what they, went, what they were going into this. I think there's gonna be a lot of processes practices and technologies that are going to sit and stay with us. You know, the way you, the three of us are interacting now, I think this is going to be very much a staple and, and part of the norm. You know, we in our, we were actually on the point of negotiating a, a new lease facility um, because we were, our, our lease was running up uh, and we, we were looking to actually expand. 
we were now forced to, okay, we want to protect the staff. We want to then do whatever we possibly can to keep people safe. We made the decision that we're going to go remote and we still have our core office space, but we've cut the footprint down to a third. And in addition now, um, you know, we, we're managing this on a sort of a three month by three month basis, but at least for the next three to six months, we have no intention of going back to or being in one space. And that might stay. And, and I would argue that if we can prove out the model using the different tools and capabilities, which we've been able to deploy actually very successfully, that might be the, um, the status quo for Nicola Labs going forward. Uh, that's always been an interesting part about the company is that your office, your headquarters was at the point part of Otterbein University and you're an OSU spinoff. You have no other connection with Otterbein. Why, you know, why was it important to be there rather than at say a Rev1 Ventures type of place? And what, what did the company gain from being in that unusual space? couple little uh, unknown facts I would say is um, interestingly the person at Ohio State's technology commercialization office that signed our license from Ohio State was Aaron Bender who is also the executive director of Otterbein's Point. So we actually had an established relationship with Aaron. Um, uh, Rodolfo Balesi who's a partner at ECOV was on the steering committee for getting bringing the, the point together. Um, so we had dialogue that was happening as they were heading towards opening up their first phase at the end of uh, 2016. And it, in many ways, it was kind of right time, right place, right time. Quite frankly, I, we were actively looking for space and Rodolfo took me on a tour of the point. And I think within like <clears throat> a day, we were negotiating a, a lease because it, it's a one, a couple things I love about it and still love about it is when you think about Otterbein and their strategy shift and what they're trying to do with the, the, the point, it's actually a very aggressive and very forward uh, looking vision. I've got just a lot of respect for not only the vision, but how they've executed it to date. Two, you know, it's fundamentally an, an innovation space. So if you, you know, spend time there, you've got private companies. I haven't been there for months, but prior to all of this mess, you know, private companies that are there, um, obviously building their business, you've got a maker space where people are coming in and out of, and then you have this education element, which is pretty unique. I mean, we, we were fortunate to have students, uh, engineering students at our Otterbein that were interns for us and a couple became actually part-time employees for us. Um, and, and it was just this kind of environment where it was, let's say small still, um, but also just kind of very innovative and, and that's the best way It's just a great energy in that space and it was a very flexible space so you know we were able to leverage um, think of like taking Rev1 and Idea Foundry and kind of throwing them together um, and some of the output it, a lot of in many ways that's like what the the point was um, so plenty of good office space and, and support um, but also all of the maker space um, that we needed in terms of you know a lot of the things that we were doing as we we're rapid prototyping and just building stuff. Let's talk a little bit about the transition. Uh, Brian, how long have you been? I understand you came from Olive, and so how long have you been no. with Nicola? <laughs> you got no. a lot of Brian's. You've got a lot of Brian's. Brian's. Oh, Brian <laughs> Ratcliffe. Is right. Yeah, that's right. That's, a, that's Brian okay. Ratcliffe that I was referring to earlier. So, um, you know, of relevance, I've been in, in Ohio now just over 20 years. I spent the first 13 or so years at Battelle. I was in multiple roles. I was in technology commercialization. 
I was part of the, um, I reported to the CFO at the time, I was part of the treasury group for a period, I ran some of the data analytics there. So I had a lot of wonderful experiences at Battelle, but left there to join another software as a service business locally here, which we ended up selling to private equity. So that was a great experience in, in small business and then spent a short period of time at Nationwide as they were starting to stand up their innovation strategy, which you're well aware of. And then I had this ongoing relationship with Will. We've known each other for, oh, I don't know, at that stage, probably seven or eight years. And that was in 2018. And, and Will and I have been talking for, for many, many years around me ultimately joining him. And, and it, the timing just seemed right. I would argue what I found really attractive is that Nicola was at that inflection point where the technology had been proven out, at least from a proof of concept in several different areas, smart buildings, potentially smart homes. You referred to some of these other applications earlier on, but there was the space in the manufacturing area which looked very promising. And, you know, literally, and Will and I had a lot of dialogue and literally when, when I joined, which was in the middle of 2018, we very quickly realized we had to focus and this was where we were going to double down. And I found that aspect very attractive and, and I've worked and got to know Will over the years and, and, you know, we just worked so well together. So when did you make the shift that Will is stepping away and you are now CEO? Uh, Will, for our listeners, is a serial entrepreneur. Those are the type of folks that build a, co a company to this kind of stage where they're starting to sell and install things and then get the itch to build something new. And so that is what he is doing with a new public access venture capital fund that we can't really talk about yet until the SEC says A-OK. But when did, you, uh, when did Brian actually become CEO and how are you handling the transition and Will, will will always be part of Nicola in some form. I'd actually like to, to take the lead on this one, Brian. So the first thing I would say is um, for me, attracting Brian Graham and finally getting him to say yes to Nicola Labs was probably one of the greatest coups of my professional and entrepreneurial life. I personally believe that Brian's one of the most talented uh, executives and operators in the region. And um, I know and believe in his capability to just create a significant amount of value in, in the experience of understanding, you know, the scale up of, of a small business, of a startup, and what it takes to, you know, come in when things are still somewhat chaotic, all the way through really being able to manage large P&Ls and building out an organization to, to scale. Um, it's just a really awesome spectrum of, of experience. So in, in many ways, interestingly, he and I have been co-leading the company uh, since he came on. Quite frankly, we've got a, a great working relationship and, you know, it's, it was just kind of continuous dialogue around, you know, where we are, where we need to go, where, what we need to change. And, and of course, with the broader leadership team as well, uh, but specifically with Brian and I, it was, I always viewed as a, a co-leadership type of scenario. It was just at the end of the day. I would make the the ultimate decision, and Brian would say, "Hey, here's all the input, and uh, but the decision's yours." Um, and so, interestingly, very early on in the shutdown, there was a fundamental shift at Nicola Labs, and I I kind of thrive in that kind of big idea. Let's like just go all out type of thing, you know, kind of vision side of things, and because of that, in the way they operate, that there are um, just 
you know, ways that you run an organization at that phase. And very quickly, we needed to do basically a 180. <laughs> and now everything came very close to like, we need to execute and comes very tactical to be create a very efficient organization. Um, and so the shift actually happened early on in that phase where it was, you know, as we got into it, it's like, Brian, you are the guy now. It just, it was that moment. And it's like, you're the guy. And so we just swapped and it became into like, you know, how can I help you? Like, you've got this thing moving forward. And we operated in that manner for months, actually, before there was any type of actual discussion at the board level, uh, quite frankly. Um, and then it just became apparent, you know, as not only just to manage through the crisis, but really where we are as a company now and the great opportunity in front of us to scale up, but doing so in such an efficient manner. And so over the last, I don't know, few weeks, we, we went through all the formalities at, at the board and notified shareholders um, and now happy to, to share the, the news with you. But I don't know, Brian, if you want to add to that, but it was, uh, it was interesting that just practically uh, from a day-to-day -day perspective, that switch happened pretty early on in the, the crisis. I would like to make one comment, and that is that this would not have been possible if it wasn't for, I would argue, both Will and I understanding and recognizing our own limitations and our ability. And we, I consider myself very fortunate that I have a partner with Will that we, we work very, very well together. We don't always agree, but we have very good dialogue around the things we don't agree on. And we execute very quickly once we have alignment and there's an explicit trust both ways. You know, if you look at your favorites on your phone, um, Will is the only non-family member on my favorites. And that's because we, we are constantly engaging. And, and I would argue that this wouldn't have been successful if it wasn't for that explicit trust and that understanding and that constant communication. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you were a tree type of question, but for each of you, what is the special ingredient that you bring to the equation? Well, I can tell you what Will brings to the equation. Yeah, let's answer it for the other person. Yeah. That'll be fun. Go ahead. You know, what Will is very, very good at is exactly what he said. He is he's the true entrepreneur in the context of if you had to define an entrepreneur. It's somebody who has a vision and has the, the guts and the fortitude to pursue that vision despite the realities of what it might take and despite the actual challenges that you end up facing around every corner. Um, he has persistence where he doesn't give up. It doesn't matter what that challenge is. And he then comes up with very novel ways of solving for it. Now, the, the flip side of that is, is that can create a lot of chaos. And I think that's where the balance is. It's like, okay, well, I get it. I understand. Here's how we might be able to do it. But Part C is not going to work. And it's having that dialogue and that balance between that visionary which is what Will is and what I like to believe is perhaps the operation side and the reality of execution. Those two blending together um, has worked very, very well. And I think that's where Will's strengths are without a doubt. So, and in, then in my answer for Brian is interestingly, Brian's actually a CEO, CFO and COO all in one. Um, and, and what I mean by that, and that's, this is where I get into like the, leadership that's required to take a company from where we are today to scaling up and getting to significant scale is that kind of breadth of understanding 
not just of the function, but actually the detailed work of what it takes to execute. Um, and he's got the ability to go in and think from an operator or from a CFO perspective, really get into the nitty gritty details and, and turn those levers in those details without losing that kind of vision and long-term view of the CEO role of where this all goes to. So it's just like this ability to go down to the detail, back up to the vision and almost not go down and up, but like sustain that on a day-to-day -day basis is uh, what I think is uh, Mr. Brian Graham's greatest strength. Thank you. That's why I got no hair. So you can make the argument that this world where we have to have fewer people in places only strengthens the business case for a type of remote sensing technology that you have. So um, when things normalize a bit, take me to what you see this company being in, say, five years. Interestingly, I don't think we've necessarily experienced whether or not there will be a big bump through the demand for remote sensing. I, I think we're in more uncorrelated market discovery outside of COVID around just the fundamental value proposition of shifting from uh, no condition monitoring or very infrequent condition monitoring to sensor-based condition monitoring, which is significantly different now. Thankfully, that hasn't been disrupted in a negative way because of COVID and arguably it will be in more of demand. But beyond all of that, I think that is just the, the transition that we're in in manufacturing because fundamentally we can drive a lot of savings to the bottom line through reducing unplanned downtime that just simply can't be achieved without sensor-based condition monitoring. And so I think the next five years are very exciting because it is a, it's a transformation that I believe will work its way throughout large manufacturing organizations, a lot of which have, you know, representation in Ohio to a certain degree. Um, and we're, we're kind of one of the early players. We're at the very beginning of it, and we've got a system where we can move fast, where we can create high value and control the customer experience and, um, and become that enterprise provider to them. Uh, so I, I think we go... Um, big and uh, we are able to sustain a lot of great relationships. So it's Brian. an interesting example of it's a new technology that's creating kind of a new category, but it's not disrupted. What do you mean? Uh, well, you're not that's disrupting manufacturing. You're you're solving a problem that they have all the way with a new technology. A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, I would argue um, this is an aspect of. Um, what do you call it, manufacturing 2.0. I think this is, this is what you're seeing, and Will said it, is it's relatively early to the game. So we are enabling manufacturing facilities and companies that do manufacturing become far more efficient. And yes, this is somewhat, it plays into what the pandemic is, which is, is not having a, a thousand people coming through your facility doing hand-based monitoring and rather having remote sensing, um, that does play. And we haven't seen, uh, you know, if that's going to be a big driver moving forward, but we, we do predict that it will be, but we're still too early to see that. So I think, I think yes, it is disruptive in the context that it does change some of the processes, but it's enabling manufacturing. It's not destroying anything, if, if, if I understood you correctly. Will is from here in Belfontin. I'm sensing Brian is not. That's correct. Was it Battelle that brought you to 
the U.S. along with Columbus. What was your uh, background before Ohio? Uh, so I was born and raised in South Africa, got married and had three kids in South Africa. I started my career as a, uh, on the financial side and actually worked for KPMG for a period of time. And then I was fortunate to work for an American company in South Africa. And they actually relocated me after several years to their headquarters in New Jersey. And we were there a year and about a year and a half and the company was acquired by a German company and they wanted us to go to Germany. And my wife and I had made a specific decision to come to the US with, the, with, the, with our family, of course. So um, I just happened to be working with Patel and I was fortunate enough that they they provided me an offer. They, they wanted me to come and join them at that stage. They were building out a, a commercialization group, uh, which was to commercialize some of their core technologies in the industrial space. So I had that experience and that was a, just a wonderful opportunity to come to Central Ohio. And like I said, I've been here just around 20 years or so. You mentioned earlier that you two had known each other for several years. Uh, is it was it sort of a mentor relationship, a investor relationship? How did you meet and what, what started these conversations? So my whole central Ohio Columbus life begins and ends with uh, 10X, the 10X accelerator. Um, so I uh, took one of my earlier startups through 10X and uh, thankfully in that batch, uh, Brian was one of the mentors and uh, that's where started to build a relationship with him and then i think like literally my whole network expands from that that point in time so anyways it's uh it's where we got to know each other and just stayed in touch over the years he made interestingly prior to joining nicola he made a couple of very key introductions to people um that became part of the the team at, at nicola labs <clears throat> people like jim Dvorsky, who he worked with at, at patel who is one of our key engineers so building a network building relationships and um and just meeting and spending time with really cool people. So you've already um, said what impresses you about Will as an entrepreneur, but what was it about this technology? You, you said you worked in the industrial space and commercialization for Battelle. What is it about this technology that said this, this is the one, this is the company I'm going to join with him on? Well, it's interesting you, you phrase it that way. For me, it wasn't necessarily about the technology. It was about the promise of a business here. The technology is, is obviously a key component of it, but it's as, um, and I think Will said it as well, it's the promise of working with really good people and being able to create something of value that's gonna be valued in a really positive way in the environment, in our community, and obviously not only our local community, but the, the the US community. And it was the prospect of actually building a, a valuable business for me that, and clearly the technology was a part of it, but that was just one enabler. Uh, given that it's your first full year since uh, really launching this platform, how close do you think in the end fiscal 20 will be to reaching the targets you had set for yourself early in the year? It's a fraction. We'll see. I, I would say we had pretty aggressive targets at the beginning of the year. So I think it depends on if you're looking at the bull case or probably the moderate case. So I would say anywhere between 20 and 30%. But what's interesting is we do a recurring revenue type model. And like, 
so we we lost not only the time of being shut down, but you had to like wind down during that time period. And then things start to come back. Then you have to start really kind of building up. So in in essence, you're now looking at probably four to six months. Honestly, like I think Brian mentioned earlier, that we're just now kind of getting to what we thought normal would be back in like February, right? And so now. I, the, the cool thing, barring any you know, major shutdown, I think we're back to the, the growth and the growth rate that we anticipated that we'd experience. But on the positive side, and as Brian mentioned, it's in a much more efficient um, and streamlined business, quite frankly. So there are a lot of positives coming out of, out of this. Just from a practical standpoint, manufacturing is a very huge and squishy term. So is it are you agnostic as to the type of manufacturing or are you stronger in automotive or steel foundries or, you know, where, where would we find this? So one of the benefits is we, we monitor individual components of manufacturing equipment. So bearings, gearboxes, shafts, um, compressors, pumps. And so, you know, it's the, it's components that you'll find on any piece of manufacturing equipment. We do, it's lended better for process type manufacturing, whether it's continuous or batch processes versus discrete. However, you know, it, it, we've got customers across a wide number of sectors from steel, food and beverage, paper, like in a lot of different verticals. Um, so a good way to think about it is how I'd, I'd like to articulate what we do. It's, we're, we're kind of like cardiologists for manufacturing equipment. So if you think about our sensors, similar to like uh, an EKG, we are three very different people, but the same equipment is used to look at, you know, to perform an EKG on our heart and to detect issues before it leads to failure. We do, we're very, very similar in that regard. So our sensors, you know, can be on a very diverse set of equipment. We're looking at the common components and with vibration and temperature analysis, you can see data, you can see break potential issues in the data, regardless of what is actually being manufactured. Right. And for our listeners, again, I've written about this company before, but the important thing is the sensors can record this is an out of normal uh, temperature, an out of normal vibration pattern, and that indicates that maybe this bearing is rattling around in there in a way that could cause everything to break. Uh, and then you got to shut down your factory for a while, and a couple hours of that can be very expensive. Did I say that right? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and I hope you all stay safe and well. And we'll Likewise. see you in in person again someday. <laughs> Sometime. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Karen. Really appreciate thank it. You, Karen. Nice uh, to meet you. Yeah.